But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray again. Uh, Father, we just want to thank you for the invitation to know you fully in your son, Jesus. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for what you've done on our behalf, uh, that through you we can, we can know the Father, we can come into the Father's presence, we can know God. Um, we thank you for the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, who is present with us now. He's at work in this room. Um, just show us Jesus. You name me pray. Amen. Who is Jesus? That's, uh, that's the big question, isn't it? Um, that's the um, question everyone in the world will have to answer at some point before you die. Who is Jesus? And um, it's precisely the question that Luke is trying to answer for us in the gospel uh, that he's written. Um, he has uh, scholarly, meticulously researched who Jesus is, and the, 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 the writing that we're looking at is his proof. It's, uh, it's his answer to the question. Um, so Luke's, at the beginning, he says he's followed things closely for some time. Um, if you don't know, Luke's a doctor, so he's, he's, he's like scientific and ordered in his research, and he's sat down with these eyewitnesses, um, and he's interviewed them about their personal accounts with Jesus, uh, and this is his account. Um, here's who Jesus is, and the passage that we're looking at this morning um, is maybe the most dazzling. It's the most glorious of the answers that, that we get for who Jesus is, and um, have you ever... Have you ever seen something or experienced something so beautiful, um, so glorious that you just didn't have the words to describe it properly? Um, maybe, maybe like an art exhibition or a concert that kind of dazzled you visually and, and, and audibly. Um, maybe the most relatable uh, experiences is like something in nature, right? Um, I, was in, uh, I was visiting my brother in California in November and uh, we drove out to Joshua Tree National Park. It's basically a, a forest, or not a forest, a desert in the middle of nowhere. And uh, we stayed there till after it got dark, and we just looked at the stars. 
Um, and it was so dazzling, so spectacular, um, that it's just hard to describe how beautiful that was. Um, or maybe you've, have you ever stood on the cliffs of Moor and like watched the sunset? That's another moment with my brother. Sounds like we do a lot of romantic things. Um, <laughs> Uh, but we, we, camp, we camped on uh, the cliff's edge there. We kind of snuck in through a farmer's field and we camped there and we watched the sunset and it's just, just dazzling. Uh, the scenes that are just too glorious, too, too dazzling to describe with words. That's, that's kind of what's happening here. Uh, this is one of those descriptions that Luke, he would have gotten from Peter, James, John. And this description of the glory of Jesus, they just couldn't properly find the words to to describe what they saw that day. Uh, John has to do this a couple times. Remember in, he, in the book of Revelation, Jesus gives him this revelation of some, some glorious things, some heavenly things. And John just has to kind of do his best to describe what he saw with the earthly vocabulary that he has. Um, and that's, that's what is happening here. There just aren't sufficient words to describe what those three saw that day. When they saw Jesus and all of his heavenly glory, uh, they do their best, and it helps us to see who Jesus is. Luke's, he's just a masterful storyteller. I don't know if you've picked up on that yet. Um, he is just patiently unfolding who Jesus is for us. He's, he's not rushing ahead. He's not, he's not jumping to certain events. He's, he's just patiently laying out this picture of who Jesus is. And I wouldn't have done that. If I was writing, here's an account of who Jesus is, I would put this at the start, or I'd, I'd at least put it near the start. Like, like, like here is this, hear about this heavenly, glorious, dazzling uh, splendor of, of Jesus. But Luke doesn't do that. He just waits to give it to us at the perfect moment, the precise, uh, appropriate moment. Um, because we've seen some amazing things, haven't we? Uh, I think if you just put yourself in the disciples' shoes, um, you get a sense that after all of the incredible things that they saw, um, after all of the miracles that we've seen up to this point, after all the healings, after the, 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 the exorcisms, after the, the resurrections, um, after these displays of Jesus' power and his authority, He's able to control weather with a word. After the disciples experienced personally this power and authority, right? They themselves have felt this power in casting out demons and healing the sick and preaching the kingdom of God. And after experiencing the abundant provision of Jesus, right? When he, when he cares and when he feeds that multitude of people miraculously, after tasting and seeing and being satisfied to the full in who Jesus is, right? After all these incredibly powerful moments of the kingdom of God breaking in, you can almost feel the excitement and the energy rising up in the disciples, can't you? You, you can feel the, their, their confidence building within them because of their, their witnessing of who Jesus is and, and, and what they are a part of. And I think the, that excitement, that energy, that confidence, it culminates in, in Peter's confession in chapter 9, verse 20, when, uh, when Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? And Peter, Peter says, you're Christ. You're the, God, you're the Christ of God. And there, there was some confusion about who Jesus was in the world of that day, but, but Peter's not confused, right? 
He confesses, I know who you are. You are the Christ of God. You, you are the long-awaited Messiah. You're the one who has come to redeem God's people. Right? So, so Peter, he A+, plus, right? He, he, he absolutely nails it. Peter gets it. He understands. Or does he? Is Jesus the Christ? Yes, he is. But, but does Peter understand fully what that means? Does Peter understand what that means for himself as a follower of Jesus? I don't think he does because you see, what, you, what we pick up on is, is here's Peter's view. Peter's view is, well, I see who Jesus is, right? I at least have some kind of revelation of who Jesus is, some partial revelation Peter has. He's, he's the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah, right? He has all power and authority. He's, he's the King of God's kingdom, which means as his followers, we win, right? And that's, that's correct. We, we do win, absolutely. And there, there are things that are correct in Peter's thinking. In God's kingdom, is there power? Yes, absolutely. In God's kingdom, is there authority over the, the physical and natural and spiritual world? Yes, we've seen that. In God's kingdom, is there glory? Yes. But, but what Peter, he didn't understand yet was the way to obtain these glorious things of the kingdom, right? And, and the way to receive these things of glory is through death. That, that's the message I unpacked last week, right? You see, their, their, their excitement is building up until this point. They're, they're beginning to understand. They're, they're seeing who Jesus is. They're seeing the kingdom break in, but there's something they didn't see. There's something they, they, they were yet to understand. That, that yes, comes glory. Yes, there comes power. Yes, there comes authority, but first comes suffering. First comes suffering, and then comes glory. First comes the cross, and then comes the crown. Because what they've experienced up until this point was a mere foretaste of that glory. Even at the, the, the power that Jesus granted to them at the start of chapter 9, it was a temporary power. But, but there's a power to come that, that is everlasting. There, there's a power to come that, that won't be taken away. There's what Paul calls a resurrection power that will be made available to them. But resurrections, they only come after what? Deaths. Resurrections only come after death. And Jesus is saying, to, to follow me means to first follow me into death. Like when he says, let them, uh, to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and then follow me, that's, that's shocking, right? Because the, the, the death of Jesus, the, it's not just the death of Jesus, it's the humiliation of Jesus, it's the mockery of Jesus. It's the rejection of Jesus, the isolation of Jesus, the, the suffering of Christ. This is what the cross means, the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. First comes those things which we must follow him into, but what comes after? Well, for Jesus, it, it was resurrection and glory, and for us, he promises the same, but, but this is the path of following Jesus, first into his death and then into his glory 
And that's what Peter failed to recognize at this point. He wanted the glory, right? Uh, he, he wanted the power. He, he, he tasted it. He's experienced it. And so Jesus, he gently and lovingly brings him back to earth a little bit by, by foretelling him of his own suffering and death and by letting him know that, that following him will mean following the same path. It's, it's taking up one's cross daily, which was a scandalous thing to say, right? Because when we think of cro- the cross, we, we think of Jesus' crucifixion, right? We, think of, we, we connect those things. The whole world connects cross with Jesus' death. Uh, but they didn't make that connection yet. This is before that, that event. The cross to them was simply an instrument of torture, right? The, the cross to them was the, the worst death reserved for the worst criminals. And here Jesus is saying, this is what following me looks like. It's a death of self, death of self-sufficiency, a death of self-will. It's joining Jesus in saying to the Father, not my will be done, but yours. What a crashing of emotions Peter and the disciples must have been feeling, right? Things are going great. The kingdom is being proclaimed. It's breaking in. Sickness and death are being reversed. Jesus is the Christ of God. And then Jesus says, yes, I am, Peter, but I'm going to go and suffer and die, and you must follow with me. Right? That, like verse 20, you're the Christ. It's high. And verse 23, well, yeah, but self-denial and death and daily cross-bearing, he's, well, that brings him back down low. But what is Peter feeling now after hearing the things that Jesus said He's probably feeling what, what you may have felt at some point when Alan was speaking last week. It's too hard. It's too hard. Why? Well, because we don't want to die. <laughs> I don't want to die. I, I don't want to give up my self-will. I don't want to give up myself sufficiently. I, I don't want to die. It's too hard. And so the the question is, well, then how is it possible? How do you do that? What is the key to living this this life of self-denial, this this life of daily cross-bearing, faithfully following after Jesus when things get really difficult? Well, Well, here again, we see the masterpiece of Luke's writing because that's a really important question. It's a really difficult question. And so Luke gives us the answer straight away. Look at verse 28. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James, and he went up to the mountain to pray. Right, so after, after dropping this bombshell of, uh, of death and self-denial and cross-bearing, it says eight days later after these sayings. So Luke is connecting this section with the previous section which was just said. He's making that connection. And we, we don't know what happened during those eight days. Uh, we don't know what conversations Jesus had with them. We don't know if Jesus maybe explained any further or, or did he just say those things and then change the subject and just leave it with them to kind of chew on. Uh, whatever happened during that week, I'm, I'm confident that these things are running around their, their minds. Right? What did Jesus mean? Why will... How will we do this? Is, is it even possible? We, we, we don't want to die. 
Jesus, we're after the glory, we're after the power, we want to win, we don't want to die. Not more persecution, not, not more being crushed. Your, your people have been doing that for hundreds of years already, surely now is the time to rise and to take power. I, I think Jesus lets them wrestle with those thoughts for a week. But after eight days, after saying those difficult things, what does Jesus do? What is the answer to this, this possible level, level of anxiety that the disciples must have been feeling? What, what's the answer to this, this doubt, this wrestling with these supposed truths? Prayer. Right? He, he takes Peter, James, and John, his, his inner circle, and he says, come. Get away with me. Come be with me. And he takes him up to the mountain to pray. I think we can read the text as simply as that. The answer to their anxieties, their doubts, their fears, their wrestling with these things that Jesus says is prayer. Jesus he believes in prayer. Jesus knows what they need is prayer. And so he takes them up to the mountain to pray. This is a prayer meeting that we read about. And something incredible happens during it. Uh, now, I want to be careful here because in this prayer meeting, the focus is on Jesus' prayers, right? The, 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 he's the focus um, because we don't really get any of the disciples praying at all. It's just all about Jesus praying. And I want to be really clear about that. It's not that the disciples receive something spectacular because of their piety, right? Because they're, they are praying. No, they just fall asleep, right? They, they receive something spectacular because of what Jesus does. See the contrast between Jesus' ministry, Jesus' faith, Jesus' power, contrasted with the weakness of the disciples, okay? And put yourself in that picture. And we see that in verse 29. It says, and as he was praying, Jesus, and so we don't know exactly what their prayer meeting looked like. Did, did, they, did they get together and pray as a group? Uh, I, I can't imagine that they didn't do that. Um, did they maybe break up for a little while and, and have some quiet time and pray alone? I don't know, possibly. We're not told exactly how they prayed or, or for how long they prayed, but, but a couple things happen while the prayer happens. One thing that happens is the disciples fall asleep, right? Uh, this won't be the last time they fall asleep while praying with Jesus. Um, and here he doesn't rebuke them for being sleepy. Um, they're tired, right? They, they walk a lot. They've just climbed a mountain. They're sleepy. That's normal. It's not a bad thing to fall asleep in prayer sometimes, right? Sometimes it's the most appropriate way to fall asleep, right? In your father's arms. Uh, but, but they're sleepy, and so at some point they fall asleep. They're weak. Uh, the main point, though, is while Jesus is praying, his appearance changes. The, the appearance of his face is altered and his clothes became dazzling white. The Greek word there for, it means flashing forth like lightning, right? So again, Luke's sitting down with Peter, James, and John, and he's saying, what did you see? And they're having trouble describing because it was so glorious, because it was so heavenly. And Mark's gospel says that his clothes became so radiantly, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them, okay? So they've, they've never seen something this, this white before. It's otherworldly in its radiance. Matthew's account says that his face shone like the sun. Have you ever tried to glance at the sun, 
right? It's, it's, what they're seeing here is quite literally stunning. It's, it's overwhelming, but it's gloriously beautiful. Paul says in Philippians 2, he speaks of Christ leaving the glory of heaven and coming to earth. And, and he says uh, that Christ, who though he was in the form of God, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, being found in human form. So what's on display here on this mountain is not that. This is not Jesus in his humble, earthly, servant, lowly, earthly form. This is Jesus in his heavenly, glorious God form. And right here, we're beginning to get the answer to that question of how is it possible to live that life of self-denial, of daily cross-bearing as we follow Jesus? And there are at least three things that we see in Jesus' transfiguration, that we should see Jesus, that we should worship Jesus, and we should listen to Jesus. How do you live this this life of, of death? See Jesus, worship Jesus, and listen to Jesus. So the first one, see Jesus, uh, they do. <laughs> in, in verse 32, it says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw him, uh, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Um, th- this, is, this is what they needed as they wrestled with those thoughts of is daily cross-bearing possible as we follow Jesus, right? How will it be possible to face the shame, the ridicule, the mocking, the the death as we follow Jesus in the world? This passage shows us that you will not find the answer to that question somewhere within yourself. You will only find the answer when you see the glory of Jesus. You, You will not find the key to living that life within yourself. You will not muster up the the willpower within. You will only be able to do it when you behold the glory of Jesus. And so that's exactly what he gives them, right? The, The key to living the sacrificial Christian life is to see Jesus, to, to see his glory. And I've said plenty of times before that that, that's our main goal when we gather together here as a church. We we want you to to leave here with a big, glorious view of who Jesus is, because that's the key to living this life. It's the only way forward for us. That's the goal of every sermon that is preached here. The goal is not for you to, to somehow remember and apply all the principles that are taught, and then your life will be better. <laughs> Hopefully you do remember some of the principles, because they're good, but you won't remember every single sermon taught. I don't remember every sim- single sermon that is taught, but you need what they give you. That You need what all of those string of, of sermons build for you, which is this big, glorious view of who Jesus is. That's exactly why you should be here this morning, and that's exactly why you should strive to be here every Sunday, not to be told, here's how you should live your life. Here are the principles, but to have your eyes fixed on Jesus and to build a big vision of the splendor of his glory. That's what we do here. That's what we want you to leave here with. And so the answer to how do you live this life of daily dying, it's not by finding the willpower within yourself but by having a big, glorious vision of Jesus. See Jesus. 
It says, when they become fully awake, they saw his glory. Isn't that the goal? To, to become fully awake, to wake up from your heavy sleepiness, to rise from your slumber and to see his glory. We don't know exactly what the, the moment of them seeing Jesus was like, seeing him in his, his heavenly, godly radiance. Uh, the Bible says anytime humans are in the, the, the presence of God in this way, in his glory, they, they, they drop down or they tremble or they die um, or that he has to protect them in a certain way, right? So when, when he, puts, he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, he kind of hides Moses as his glory passes by. Moses just kind of catches a glimpse of his back. Uh, we don't know what it was like for the three to not just see the Christ who humbly walked on earth, but to see the Christ who will victoriously and gloriously return one day. But it must have been incredible. And it, it seemed to have, uh, they seemed to have carried that with them the rest of their lives. Peter, he later speaks of being eyewitnesses of his majesty. He remembers back, this gave him something that he needed. And what an incredible gift. And it's exactly what they needed, to see Jesus, to understand who he is, and to behold his glory. He's not just a man who is a son of a carpenter. He wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't someone with incredible power. He's God. Hebrews 1 says he's the radiance of the glory of God, having the exact imprint of his nature. That's who Jesus is, the radiance of the glory of God. That's what they're seeing here. What a, what a roller coaster this must have been for Peter and the disciples, right? You're the, God, you're the Christ of God. Yeah, but you must suffer and, and, and die. You're going to follow in my footsteps. And then they see the splendor of his glory, Right, They're given exactly what they need to see the glory of Jesus, and that's exactly what you and I need today, to behold the glory of Jesus. That, that's the, the key to living this life in Christ. And so you might be asking, you might be thinking to yourself, well, we don't get to go up on a mountain with Jesus and see him transfigured into his glory. It's not really fair, Right? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 would disagree, and he would say, we do get to behold his glory. In, in that chapter, Paul, he's talking about the old covenant and the new, and he uses Moses as this example. And remember Moses, he got to go up a mountain and, and be in the, the glory of God and, and to be in his presence. But when he came back down, he says he had to put a veil over his face, right? And, and Paul uses this, this analogy of a veil to talk about the separation between the people and God's glory, right? There's a separation between who God is and the splendor of his glory and people. And so that's a problem, right? But he says in, in, in 2 Corinthians 3 that there's good news because it's possible for that veil to be lifted. And he says it's only lifted, it's, it's only through Christ that it's taken away. It's only through Christ uh, Paul says. And that phrase, through Christ, he's talking about the cross of Jesus. Christ dying in our place. Christ paying the penalty for our sins. It's through his suffering and death 
Even the Gospels on the, on the day of crucifixion talk about the veil being, being torn in two. Like through Christ, the veil is removed. Through Christ, access into God's presence, access to God's glory is available. And Paul says in, 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 in verse 16, he says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When, when one puts their, their, turns to the Lord, when they put their faith in Jesus, it's through Christ that the veil is removed. And then Paul says something amazing in verse 17. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right? So Paul, he, there, he's, he's, he's describing the work of God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and the life of those who have turned to the Lord. Right? This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. He says, where the Spirit is, there's freedom. And where is the Spirit? Well, he lives in in you, Christian. He lives in all of you, Christians, and there is now freedom. The the veil is removed, and and with unveiled face, we now behold the glory of the Lord. And as we behold his glory, we are being transformed into the same image image from one degree of glory to another. Isn't that incredible? Incredible. Jesus, he comes to us personally through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we can behold his glory, not on a mountaintop, but right where you are. We are given access to the loving presence of God, and slowly from one degree to the next, our self is put to death. He frees us from our self-sufficiency, from our self-will, and he transforms us into his likeness. We are transfigured into his glory. Isn't that amazing? But we must see Jesus, friends. And the spirit abides in you, Christian. The helper, Jesus calls him. The the advocate, the friend. In John 14, Jesus says, the father, he'll send him in my name and he, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you, isn't that good? Uh, today's uh, Trinity Sunday, and this is the, the, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all working together to reveal God's glory to you and to transform you into his likeness. But maybe you need the veil taken away for the first time. You, you need to turn to Jesus. You need to trust in who he is and what he's done for you on the cross. He loves you. He really does. And he died for you in order for the veil to be removed so that you can enter into God's presence, behold his glory, and be transformed into his likeness, into the the image of God that you were created to be. You become transfigured into his likeness. Maybe you need to do that for the first time. And Christian, in the Spirit, behold his glory. Read his word 
gather with his people, come to him in prayer, behold his glory through the spirit in your life, become fully awake and behold his glory, right? Having a grand vision of the glory of Jesus, it's key to living this life that he has called you to. Hey, is there, is there anything in your life that is stopping you from seeing the glory of Jesus? One Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the spirit. Right? There, there are things in your life, there are things that you might be doing, the things that you might be consuming that are quenching the spirit's work in your life. And if the spirit's work in your life is to reveal the glory of Jesus to you, is there anything in your life that is quenching the spirit's work? Maybe you need to watch a considerable amount less of Netflix in the evenings. And maybe you just need to get off social media for a while. Are there things in your life that are capturing your attention, your affections, or just eating up the very little time that you have in a single day? This time that could be spent listening to the Spirit and beholding the glory of Jesus. Because the goal of seeing Jesus is so that you can worship Jesus, right? And that's the second point. See Jesus, worship Jesus. Are, are there things in your life that you're putting on par with Jesus? What are you worshiping? You're worshiping something. You're worshiping someone. It, it's, it's in your DNA. It, it's how God created you to be a worshiper. You're, you're gazing at the glory of something. And that something is receiving your worship. What is it? Who is it? Is it Jesus? What's in your life that you're gazing at the glory of and it's capturing your affections? Uh, the Bible calls these things idols. Um, what are the idols in your life? Are there things in your life that are on par with Jesus? Peter makes this mistake because he sees Jesus in all of his glory, and it says but he also sees him speaking with two people, Moses and Elijah. They appear in glory, and they're having a conversation with Jesus. And, and verse 33 says, as Moses and Elijah were departing, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and Luke says he said this not knowing what he said. Uh, that word tense that's used there, it's the same kind of transliteration as the word tabernacle, right? And the tabernacle is the place where God's presence would dwell with the Old Testament people. This is the place where they would, where they would come before God and worship him. And, and here Peter suggests three tabernacles, three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then something incredible happens in verse 34 in response to Peter suggesting this. Verse 34 says, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. There's a lot of Old Testament imagery in this passage. They're, they're on a mountain. 
They're, they're talking to building tabernacles. Uh, Moses and Elijah are there. there there's a cloud. Any, the, the, the cloud is the presence of God uh, for the Old Testament people. In Exodus 40, the, the cloud would, would cover the tent of meeting, and the glory of God would fill the tabernacle. And that's kind of what happens here. This, this cloud envelops them and overshadows them, and the presence of God is all around them. Verse 35 says, and a voice came out of the cloud. Whose voice? This is God the Father speaking, and he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Right, so Peter makes a mistake. Here is Jesus with two of the greatest figures in all of the Old Testament. Moses is the greatest, right? Moses is the, the, the great mediator. He, he brought the law of God to the people. He's, he's, he's this, this Christ-like Savior who was sent to, to lead the people out of their bondage, right? When, when Moses is mentioned, you're meant to think of the Exodus, Right? which is a, a picture of salvation. We're meant to read the Exodus and think this is how God saves people. And, and the Exodus shows us this is, this is God delivering his people from slavery into freedom. And notice it says that they're speaking to Jesus about his departure, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And that word departure, it's literally Exodus. Right? They're talking about Jesus' Exodus. This new exodus, this, this better ultimate exodus, and Elijah's there, the, the greatest prophet who spoke in the Old Testament, but, but God the Father, what does he do when these three men are standing there? He, he points to Jesus and he says, this one is my son. This is the chosen one. Listen to him. Not Moses, not Elijah. They, they, they were faithful servants of God, but Jesus is the very son of God. You got to feel for him. Peter receives some awkward uh, rebukes along the way, um, but this one probably takes the biscuit, right? Because this this is the most awkward. Because God, the Father, is saying, "No, Peter, not three. You don't need three tabernacles. These other two are great, but don't put them on par with my son." There's no need for three tabernacles. Jesus is the only one to be worshipped here. He is the only one to be marveled at. His glory is unmatched. You see at the end, it's Jesus standing alone. He stands alone. This is the second time we hear the Father's voice declaring who his son is. Right? Firstly, it is baptism, and then here again. This is my son. This is the one I'm well pleased with. This is the chosen one. So we must, we must see Jesus, behold his glory, which should lead us to worshiping him alone. No, nothing, no one should be on par with Jesus. We worship him alone because of who he is, right? Because he's God's son, because he's the chosen one. But then once you know that, once you know who he is, there's one more implication. And the father says, this is my son. This is the chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. We listen to people because of who they are, right? Because of their position. Remember those like early days of, of the pandemic and 
like the health minister would go on TV and everyone would tune in and listen to him, right? If the, the prime minister speaks or a president speaks or a king speaks, even if you disagree with them, you listen because of who they are. And that's the implication here. The father is saying, do you see who he is? This is my son. This is the chosen one. Listen to him. You can't understate how impactful this would have been for these three faithful Jews, Peter, James, and John, for God to look at Moses and Elijah and Jesus and say of Jesus alone, listen to him. Jesus is the chosen son. He's the supreme revelation of his heavenly father. It wasn't Moses. Moses was a foreshadow. He was a great mediator. He was a great helpful rescuer, but he simply pointed us to Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses who is to lead this greater exodus, giving this greater revelation of who God is. Elijah was a great prophet, but he was only pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Elijah. He's the one we should be listening to. That's, that's the argument that the author of Hebrews makes at the very outset of his letter, right? He says at the very beginning, in the past, God had spoken to us. He's spoken to our ancestors through these prophets many times and in many ways. It's great. Really thankful for that. But he says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Like, no one's like Jesus. God does not speak through Jesus in the same manner in which he spoke through the prophets like Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the ultimate speaker for God. Jesus is, is the tabernacle. Jesus is the presence of God here on earth. Jesus is the medium of communication. Jesus is the revelation of God. So that means we, we can and we should have great confidence in that, that everything that God wants to say to us is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And we desperately need to understand that because we live in a complicated and confusing world. Don't we? All around us, more than ever before, the world is constantly, 24 hours a day, speaking to us, advising you on what you should do, on who you should be, on what you should think. This comes in the form of social media, news, podcasts. We can literally consume this content 24 hours a day, right? We have very little stillness very little quietness in our lives that we don't instinctively fill up with more content. Go to the bathroom without your phone, church. <laughs> you fill it up no matter what you're doing with content. The world is offering us a never-ending selection of things to value, things to treasure, things to worship, things to listen to. How then do we decide what is right and what is wrong? How do we decide what is true and what is false, what is good and what is evil? Right here, God the Father gives us very clear guidance. Listen to Jesus. Will you listen to Jesus? Will you trust Jesus? Yes, Jesus' words about the nature of his kingdom can be unsettling like last week. He, he went to the cross and he says his followers must pick up their crosses daily. But thankfully, he doesn't ask us to do this under our own power. He gives us the way. We must see Jesus. 
We must worship Jesus. We must listen to Jesus. Because of who he is. Who is he? He's God's chosen and pleasing son. Would you stand with me and we'll pray. I'll not pray yet. I'm gonna give you like a you know like a post-credit scene. I'm gonna give you one of those. So I've I've stopped my timer. My preaching time is over, but I get a little, you get a little bonus bit. Um, Peter needed to see Jesus. He needed to behold the glory of Jesus, but that wasn't all that he needed. It, it, it should bring your mind back to what Jesus said before. It says. In verse 26, it says, For whomever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You have to imagine Peter might have thought, after seeing the glory of Jesus with his own eyes, I'll never be ashamed of him again. But he does, doesn't he? Peter is ashamed of Jesus. He denies him three times. So this might sound weird, but seeing the glory of Jesus is not enough. Peter needed to see the glory of Jesus, but Peter also needed the suffering to come. He needed, needed, why? Because first comes the suffering and then comes the glory. Peter saw the glory of Jesus with his own eyes and he still was ashamed of him. He was still ashamed of him. He needed something else. He needed to see the glory of Jesus He needed to to go through the valleys. He needed to fail as well. He needed to learn what it means to to bear the cross and all of that and to see the the, the glory of Jesus. And the glory of Jesus is what brings him through. He he carries that with him through the rest of his life. So don't don't hear me saying, hey, see the glory of Jesus and everything's gonna go great in your life and you'll you'll never fail. Um, you, You will. But he needed also the grace of God in Jesus, right? And so that's what he, he receives. Uh, that's what we receive in the cross. He's gonna fail. He sees the glory of Jesus and he's still ashamed of him. He still messes up. But there's grace for him and there's grace for you as well found at the cross of Jesus. And so Jesus gives us this meal to help us remember that, to help you remember you're gonna, you're gonna fail. It's who you are, you're a sinner. But I've made a way for forgiveness and reconciliation to be, to be accomplished. I've done it on the cross, and here's a way to remember that, to keep you going, to remember what I've done for you. It's not about you, okay? Like I said at the, at the start of this prayer meeting, it wasn't about the piety of the people. It was about Jesus and what he has done and what he has accomplished and given to us. And the cross is the ultimate example of that. Here's forgiveness. Here, here's, here's the reconciliation Here's how the, the veil is torn in two, and you can now behold the glory of Jesus. Um, that's good news, isn't it? It's good news. Uh, let me pray. Um, Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. Uh, as John says at the beginning of his gospel, you are, the, you are the word in flesh. We see the fullness of God's glory in you. And um, just pray for us this morning, Lord, as... Many of us are in some deep valleys. Many of us are struggling with doubt 
we're struggling with, is this possible? Is this real? Is this true? We think that you're patient with us. You allow us to, to wrestle with those things and you, you give us the answer. You say, look to me. Come to me. I am the answer. I am the way. You just have to trust me. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you yet, who haven't trusted you, haven't turned to you. The veil is still there. Um, may they listen to the Spirit's work in their lives. There's, if there's that tugging, um, would you give them the, what they need to respond? To enter into that life of self-denial and, and trusting who you are. May today be the day of salvation, Jesus. And Lord, for your people, um, would, you, would you help us by your Spirit to behold your glory, to get rid of our idols, and to, 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 to listen to the Spirit and behold your glory. You give us what we need in the glory of Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. We worship you. Thank you for the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.